This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be talking to the author of a book that has just come out uh, titled A Body of One's Own, A Trans History of Argentina, published by the University of Texas Press in January 2024. This book pretty much does exactly what it says. It is a trans history of Argentina which is fascinating. Um, It covers a lot of ground, a lot of topics, and speaks, I think, both to Argentina, but also to some topics and places beyond it as well. So congratulations on the publication of your book, and thank you to its author for being here, Dr. Patricio Simonetto. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Miranda, for inviting me. I'm very excited to have this opportunity of talking with you about my new book. I'm very excited to have you. Can we start off, please, with a bit of a backstory, an introduction of yourself and why you decided to write this book? Well, uh, my name is Patricio Simonetto. I'm, a, I'm an Argentinian myself. I, I, I was, was trained in Argentina um, when I did my PhD at University of Quilmes. And now I'm currently, I'm a lecturer on gender and social policy at the University of Leeds, Leeds um, in the United Kingdom, in England. So during all my, my research, have been always working on the queer and trans histories of, of Latin America. Uh, I had a, a first project about the radical homosexual movements in the 70s, and, and a second book that it's now coming out in English about um, the history of sex works in Argentina and how they're shaped notions of gender, race, and class. So... When I was thinking about this question about, you know, why I decided to write this book, um, I, I, there are three things that came to my mind. The, the first one was a question that was all the time in my head. I was, why am I writing this? Like, should I write this? It was a, a common question that came to me in terms uh, of who I am. I'm, I'm a gay cisgender author uh, from Latin America. And I'm not saying this only as a statement, but... Um, because I'm, I'm pretty aware, and the book reflects on this, um, 
the privilege of having the time and the funding to do the archival research, to, to write uh, to, to, and to reflect on this uh, topic about a community that has been historically excluded from the spaces of knowledge production and how this impacted in the, in the, in the writing of the book itself. Honestly, the, the, the book, the, the idea of the book came for, from two sources. Uh, uh, one was a medical archives. It was during my career has been working in different archives uh, in colleges of, of medicine, trying to trace life of people considered uh, abnormal or portrayals of normal. And I, I keep finding myself with different narratives and interviews in which uh, some people talk about themselves um, as uh, inverted inside their own spiritual and psychological life, people crossing different views and gender. And I noticed that there was not many books written on the topic about Argentina. And this was an opportunity for me to contribute, to reflect on, on, on why or what, what can we say about this experience? How can we think it? And what this imagination about this experience is can tell us about Argentina as a country. And second, this book uh, is it, 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 um, is a result, I think, of friendship. And um, in particular, of, of one of my best friends in life, who is Alba Reda, who is someone I really admire, uh, who is a big advocate for trans rights, um, who really inspired me to continue with this project. And I'm lucky enough to, to, be, to, have, or to count them as one of the people praising for this book in the back cover. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, and I think that thoughtfulness really kind of comes through in a lot of aspects um, and gives me a bunch of things really to obviously want to ask you more about. The first one I'd like to pick up is the idea of kind of the history of Argentina, of national histories and the stories that are told about this. Um, because I really think the title of the book is true, A Trans History of Argentina. It is a trans history, but it is also a history of Argentina told through a lens of transness. So can you tell us a bit about kind of these two aspects and how the book challenges maybe our traditional national historical storytelling ways by looking at this lens? Thanks for this question, because it was something I was always very concerned uh, to be clear about. This is a book that was trying to do, and it's something I, I always try to do is trying to engage with an alleged marginal experience to retell or to rethink how do we imagine and how we understand, in this case, a, a country or a nation. But no, especially because I, I know historians of sexuality are usually accused of writing about marginal topics or topics that are not, not, not necessarily important for the making of the crafting of big political issues. What, what I try to do, and I hope to have done it well, is to come back to this legend marginality to explore the ways in which Argentinians imagine and experience sex as a vital concept that structure the legal and cultural logics of gender as its embodied, embodied experience through, through the 20th century. And this, this focus on sex as a, as a frontier space, as a space where there's a lot of imagination being accumulated, allowing me to engage with multiple topics uh, and also political discussions, social discussions, uh, and cultural discussions that I think will um, define the history of, of my country in the 20th century. Just to focus on some points that I think uh, will be central in my book, or are central in my book. First is what happened when we rethink um, national storytelling from the experience of those communities that have been marginalized, especially in, interesting in this big 
contrast between democracy and dictatorship. There has been a binary defining the ways in which usually Argentinians understand a national history. What I noticed, and I'm trying to make an argument, is that when we focus in, on, on these communities excluded by the gender expression or by the sexuality, what we see is a big continuity. Now, sexuality comes into public life as a metaphor, social order, or something that needs to be regulated, uh, structured, and help us to, to think beyond these alleged um, contrasts, these binaries, to see maybe long lines, long durations, or, or long processes that are going through the whole cent- uh, century. Also, I'm, I'm interested in, in thinking on the history and transness as a, a space of, as a laboratory for historical imagination. You know that the public portrayal and public experimentation with certain bodies that were considered abnormal, that were excluded. Uh, what I noticed there is that uh, in these narratives about these bodies, about trans bodies, uh, what is being crafted as are all the categories, all the experiences about race, about gender, uh, about sexuality, but also about social class. And I'm trying here to come back to, to a claim that a recent st- recently the historian Pauline Alberto has done on the need of bringing all these, these histories that have been uh, being crafted separately together to think how, for example, the ideas of transness as something uh, uh, external to nationality, to nationhood, or the deception with certain immigrant bodies can help us to think, well, how Argentinians imagine whiteness and beauty. You know, what are these ideas, how, how these ideas can help us understand what it means to be Argentinian uh, in general, not beyond, beyond trans experience. Um, so what, what I would say is that if someone is going to come to my book, what they will find is maybe a method of a way of rewriting national histories through focusing on something allegedly abnormal uh, and, and, and praising for bringing those topics to the core of, of mm. political and national imagination. Mm. No, those are, those are some great things to raise. And I think as the end of that answer signaled, this is something that can and maybe should be done, not just for Argentina's national history, right? This could be done for a lot of countries, Obviously, you have some personal connections that I imagine make it easier to engage with these archives and this history. But could you maybe speak to why you chose Argentina to focus on, why it's a particularly useful context to study these issues? Well, yes, um, th- this was also, all, all the fact, all the questions I, I face in the moment. Now, I, when, I, when I started this project, um, I needed to write a you know, uh, convincing uh, praise to get funding, in this case was funding of the European Union, which I was uh, very uh, lucky to get. Um, and um, I first got the topic, you know, and then I started thinking, you know, why Argentina? Why, why, why Argentina is important? I, I noticed two things that I think are, are vital of Argentina. Uh, the, the first is that Argentina is one of the few countries in the world that explicitly ban gender affirmation practices. Uh, at the moment, they call it you know, belt procedures affecting um, reproductive organs, and this uh, banning uh, will be will allow me to 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 engage with two things. The first of, of it is an apparent paradox. You know, like in the 20th century, what what I see is that at least in Argentina, the notion of sex become a more flexible notion, and there's more narratives and discourses around and surrounding this idea. You know, that sex is not an inflexible reality. There's some possibilities of exper- experimenting with it and you know, crossing what people understand of sex in different moments. But as a reaction to these apparent a flexibilization. What it's what I see is that the local elites you know 
medical elites, but also politicians, state agents react is by trying to create some type of corset because they understand that sexuality is a vehicle, a vehicle for a human reproduction and human reproduction is strategic for national development because now usually Argentina is imagined as an empty country that needed to be populated. So what we see is like there's a lot of policies of attempt to regulate this apparently uh, flexibility. And secondly, what I would say to Argentina, because now, uh, maybe the some of the people in the audience know Argentina has been a pioneer in trans rights uh, in the 21st century. Argentinian history of transness brings us up something that I think is very needed, that is uh, because this uh, banning of gender gender uh, affirmative uh, procedures was related with protecting or allegedly protecting human reproduction, is that allows us to see the connections between uh, transness and other fights for a body autonomy um, and feminist autonomy. Well, so what I try to do in this book is to make the case that there is no, by any mean, any possibility of supporting feminist and trans uh, history and feminist and trans uh, social movements struggle and fights. Um, so I, I try to make the case of, uh, against this divorce uh, by, by bringing it back. And, and I think that's obviously clear in the title. I was coming back to this classic uh, book of Virginia Woolf, essay of Virginia Woolf, and trying to reframe it uh, in this praise for body autonomy and, and the right of everyone to have a body for their own. No, thank, thank you for explaining that. Um, it's always good to understand kind of the thinking behind these key decisions. And I promise this is my last question in that category, I suppose. Um, the book focuses on archives, on the experiential dimensions, on the experimental. Can you tell us a bit about your focus on these areas in the book? The, the, the question that came to me when writing this book is, how can I study embodied experience through archival research? It means like by tracing fragments of archival experiences that are being narrated. Um, the first thing, and this is more like a queer methodological thing, is like I, I always start thinking of something that the LGBTQ community do, does, or you have done historically, that is taking some slurs or terms or I, that, that, that have been designed to denigrate certain communities and turn them uh, into a key to navigate archives and found materials that can help us, it can be the base to build other types of stories, other narratives, uh, I, I hope more reparative narratives. Through this process, I also was lucky enough to make contact with amazing archival projects such as Archivo de la Memoria Trans, the Trans Memory Archive, El Archivo Desviado, um, Memorias Malucas, who are grassroots archival projects, uh, which are doing a lot of work to expand archival imagination and to, and to create new ways of defining what is archived of our communities and how can we engage with it, like from personal photography to heels, uh, costumes, uh, dresses. Uh, I think that that is central, was vital for writing this book. Uh, during my workshop, my field work, my workshop, my field work, um, I came to this repeated phrase about that the body remembers, you know, the body recollects our experience. So what I try to do in this book is, well, how can we approach to body, to embody experience, also as some type of archive. Uh, to do this, I, I come back to a more 
in a metaphorical way to an idea of Marx that bodies in capitalist society are living machines, not because the capitalist relationship are transform our body itself. So I try to think like, well, what if we think bodies as living archives and living laboratories? And I came here with with two two dimensions of this. On one hand, it's like how the public portrayal of these bodies crossing gender frontiers uh, portrayed as abnormals are fabricating social categories, are being used to transform what we understand of whiteness, what we understand as social class, and what we understand as gender. And and a second uh, thing is like how everyone, ourselves, also experiment with our bodies to be seen and to embody what we want to be. And also here, I focus on the, of the body knowledge produced. I, I, it always catch my attention by writing a book, a phrase I found in an, in an old ethnography in which a travesty woman says, oh, um, I learned about hormones through the livers of my friends. And also this idea that it's a body experimentation where knowledge is being produced and this is knowledge is circulating. Uh, but, but also how a body, uh, and this is something I learned for interviews, is recollecting experiences of violence, experiences of exclusion, and, and we can get maybe a little deeper on this in, in, in future uh, questions. Finally, about this question about archive, I think that something I have been coming a lot in this book is about the paradoxes of visibility. And as we know, for trans, but also for all the LGBTQ movements, visibility has been a main claim, a, a political tool for transforming reality. What I, I, I try to do when I come back to the past is thinking how this visibility is working. And, and, and something that really um, strikes me uh, in, the, in the last years has been the fact that the reasons why someone become visible in the archive are not necessarily the good reasons, the reason, <laughs> or desirable reasons. Nobody we find in the archive, in the archives of jails, archives of medicine, is that the, the reason why someone become legible, legible sometimes is, is unpleasant. So I'm trying to, to come back to this, what I call the paradoxes of visibility, to think how also uh, something that the other authors are subject to reach you working on is the idea of invisibility can be also in, in the past, in this traveling past, a, uh, a way of agency, a way of escaping the eye, the public eye, um, and escaping this, this archival moment. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mm. No, some really useful points there that I think, having read the book, kind of come up all throughout. Um, so thank you for giving us that foundational understanding of kind of what we're looking at, how we're looking at. Um, these topics. And I'd love to kind of now get into one of the first big things you raise in the book, if we now start to move somewhat chronologically, um, is of course, at the beginning of the time period, the beginning of the 20th century, 
what does it mean to be Argentinian? Who gets to be Argentinian? This is very much something you document as being contested. And the lens of transness, I at least found quite helpful in understanding this struggle for citizenship. So can you take us through this concept of citizenship, this contested aspect of the term through this embodied experience of transness you've just been discussing? Um, yes. So th- there is a long tradition in feminists and, and, and queer thinking about how to approach to citizenship. Uh, citizenship, no one can say there's a tradition of citizenship status or citizenship as, as practice. It's like, um, the first thing is that when I, I was thinking of citizenship is, um, you know, as, as, uh, related with nationhood, it was thinking how the portrayal of these bodies as something external, uh, sometimes indigenous bodies that were crossing gender frontiers, but also bodies of immigrants was being used at the beginning of the century to build frontiers of gender, but also frontiers of national uh, belonging and to define what is um, the desired citizen. Uh, now, what is the citizen that these elites are seeking for? On one hand, now this would be a vehicle of disappointment with the with the modernization force of immigrants uh, and how they can contribute to Argentina. And in that sense, I think uh, transits can help us to understand the expansive, uh, um, but also the constraining forces defining what is to be of of the, of the meanings of whiteness, what it means to be Argentinian, and how people in this time is thinking of rapiness as synonym of modernity, and how is and this moment turning to more to nationhood or you know, national subjects, etc., something desirable. On the other hand, I, I explore this especially in the first chapter. I try to think, well, what happened with those bodies also internally that are seen as abnormal, especially indigenous bodies um, that are racialized. But and, and this is something that is repeated through the book in different chapters. Uh, the exotization of these bodies uh, play a vital role uh, to 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 mark this difference and to and to clearly make an association between sexual deviance and some type of racialization. Saying this, this book is trying to engage um, um, on citizenship in this more experience of uh, practice. So what, what I try to think is like, well, what, what these people do to belong to so some type of community? Now thinking more in the work of Ochoa, Marcia Ochoa, of Rafael de Hess, it's like how people negotiate the social belonging in their everyday life and if we can't think citizenship beyond the state itself, well, there is other type of citizenship that is more related with being recognized as you want to be recognized or acknowledged by others that you really care in your everyday life. So um, what, what I try to, to do is just to, to uh, register or to recollect what all these small practices that people do, you know, from forging documents uh, to getting a job to making a group of friends that allows them to navigate this, this, this experience. Uh, and, and this also connects maybe with what we're saying that the, the last question about thinking citizenship not as an abstract reality, but as an embodied experience. Uh, and for example, when we think in the exclusion of healthcare services and we think of uh, policing of public space, not the police constant imprisonment of people crossing the frontier, you know, general of trans people, what we have to think is like these experiences will cause a long uh embodied experiences of, of violence um, and, and, and try to come to bring this into a more uh, situated and everyday um, 
narration of citizenship or what it means to be a citizen. I, I always think in a phrase of the director of the Transmemory Archive, Maria Belen Correa, she, she usually says that uh, democracy started for trans people in 2012 when the parliament passed a gender identity law because they started to be recognized by Argentinian state how they wanted to be, you know, in their own terms, with their names, with the gender, uh, the civil gender. Um, so I, I come back to this phrase in the book to think if this experience of being embodied, this experience of embodied exclusion could, could tell us something more about what it means to be a citizen and, and how if the ways in which we have been narrating the histories of citizenship in Argentina, but I think elsewhere uh, is not biased, um, but not recognizing, for example, that this has a cisgender dimension that, that start by excluding uh, trans people from access of all the, the rights you know, and, and the experience of be free. Mm, no, that, that's, that's fabulous. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, it's probably worth highlighting that, of course, what we're doing here is in many ways, a highlights tour of the book. Anyone who's intrigued by what has been said so far and what we're going to go on to talk about, please read the whole book. I promise there's a lot more detail there that gets into this more, but at least we have a sense of these ideas and how they go together, which is incredibly helpful. Um, And I'd love to ask you about kind of another part of the book that I think builds on what you've just told us, um, especially the idea of kind of what is being seen by the state? What is not being seen? How is the state reacting? Because to me, at least, that was something that was clear throughout the time period, that kind of people would do things in their daily lives and the state would react and then people would do other things. And it was this back and forth quite a number of times. So if we look at the early 20th century, um, one that I think stands out for a number of reasons is the spectacular, is being spectacular. Um, Can you tell us about what this was and how communities um, that called themselves invert communities in the early 20th century, how the state reacted? How did this influence and shape legislation? Thanks for this question, because uh, something I have been working very strongly, maybe this is a national struggle, is to try to decentralize the state from you know the, the center of historical narrative because I, as you said and I trying to to show this sometimes I'm, I'm usually the state is more coming after social change and trying to react and regulate what they see as something problematic or threatening uh, for for national uh, development. Um, well, uh, in this first chapter, um, obviously I'm engaging with the history of invertidos sexuales and maricas. You now we're all um, I don't know if identities, but I would say gender and sexual experiences that not necessarily adjust to the concept we use today to refer uh, to, to transness or even to, to gay or lesbian experiences. So in, in this first part, what I'm trying to first do is to, well, what are the conflicts of these multiple genealogies we have established at the moment in which you know, uh, gay history, lesbian history, trans history go to the past and try to define some clear lineages? that come from the past to the present to define a clear, a clear identity. And therefore, I'm laying myself questions about like, well, uh, who needs this past uh, in this moment? And what are the political implications on when this past is played in the, in the present? Uh, and what are the epistemological implications of going to a past that have different concepts and trying to build a history? Of them? Something that has uh, other historians have done in the past. When it comes to a spectacularity, and I, uh, in this moment, um, this idea came to me 
because uh, uh, the first that happened to me was I was impressed <laughs> by these uh, invertidos sexuales walking in, you know, in car- working in the street, using carriages, using these amazing dresses that's been uh, photographed. Uh, in the in the street, even reading you now in the socialist press, well beware, there is uh, some thief dress you know, of women, they will try to steal you, or, or then some stories of or what we today would call trans men of people living 23 years, having an amazing job, taking themselves a photograph, um, um, no, I'm, I'm kind of showcasing this spectacular life. And, and what comes to me uh, with this was this idea that well, somehow, for so, some of, of these people, these communities, um, the spectacular navigation of public space was a way, was a space in which gender was being constructed. Um, I was part of this experience, of this material experience of kind of challenged, uh, challenging gender gender frontiers, and all the, of the experience of using dresses in public, experience of using a corset, experience of going attending parties. Uh, but obviously, this spectacular navigation of public space came with some risks, no? usually encounters with police or with social violence, so that they will find different ways of trying to navigate or to avoid these encounters. What uh, is interesting is that with this uh, spectacularity uh, increases in the media, no? that way we see that there are more and more and more attention to this society about well, what, what happened with these people that is crossing this gender frontier, that is doing things that are not correct, is that the state will increasingly uh, or tries to regulate this. So, so in the 30s, you know, in a context in which there was a big social crisis caused by the, the international cracks, and in which there was an increasing attention to, or, yeah, intuition, the desire for the state to intervene in social life and to create order, there will be a new set of legislation uh, in the city of Buenos Aires that we will say is that dressing with clothes of the opposite, opposite sex is banned, along with uh, some uh, other legislation uh, punishing uh, what is called sexual scandal in public spaces. Or, or, uh, so what, what is really catching my eye here is that what stray, the state is trying to do is to regulate rated and sexual practices, how uh, people is presenting the gender in public spaces. And by policing this, what they are trying to do or what they're building is an idea of social order in which sexuality and gender act some type of, of complement metaphors of, of a more uh, traditional and conservative notion of, of political order. Um, and and as you document in the book, this doesn't stop, right? It's not like they put these laws in place and then, okay, the conversation is over. In fact, you talk about how, for example, in the middle of the 20th century, the media attention in some ways even seems to increase on this topic. So can you tell us if we move sort of chronologically around that bit, 1950s, 1960s, what were the kind of media narratives around trans experience at that point? And how did that increased visibility, you know, if we're talking about the state reacting to things, what happened then? As you say, obviously the state is always coming late and, and, and it's trying no, it's trying to... to cover the sun with the hands, and all this is, is a broad experience. But we've seen the middle of the century as a multiplication of narratives about transness uh, in different directions, in multiple directions. On one hand, we have an increasing visibility of, of travesty experience, now, which is a particular Argentinian and Latin American uh, way of understanding transness. Uh, I particularly focus in the, in the 60s on, on shows, on theaters, 
on on how this shows some theaters become a somehow an, a, a space of experimentation with notions of beauty and one means to be travesty, uh, knowing how beauty is understood in this community in this, in this moment in particular associated with nature and the natural features are almost feminine uh, and, and also all the spaces um, of in which uh, travesty experience is being cooked, no? like such as uh, carnival, for example. Uh, but also in this time, we have uh, increasing attention to what is the first transsexual narratives. You know, that is, uh, transsexual narratives are, are narratives that are focusing on the idea of what it's usually called the narrative of the brown body. You know, this, this is very extended uh, narrative, social narrative about people that be, be psychologically or spiritually burdened from inside. Uh, and they need some type of medical intervention in order to be fixed, in order to go uh, to the direction that they feel internally, you know, like uh, to the gender they feel internally. This is something that is reproduced by the media, but also in several interviews, people kind of taking this narrative and using them to define themselves. So but the first thing I always I start thinking in this moment is how incredible is that these narratives act as some type of open scripts. Uh, you, you can read in the news that certain people are saying, oh, I read this story of this X person and, and I feel the same. No, I have the same problem. I, I'm internally, you know, the gender, I need uh, somehow being fixed. And there's some doctors that will start even offering the services, you know, to try to fix what they see as a problem, you know, as, a, as a way of what we today would call like a medical transition and social transition. Uh, but as as happened in the in the at the beginning of the century was a, this will cause a big clash with with the state again uh, in particular in the 60s there will be a case it was called the the, the fascio trial the fascio was a, a, a very famous doctor who was uh, one of the first in the country um, um offering openly offering hormonal um, and surgery treatments to, to those people who was uh labeled as transsexual um, he will be accused as uh, genit- of genital mutilation and medical malpractice but by, by the justice system, which will be the base of, of or will lead to a new legislation uh, that will openly, in 1967, uh, ban any type of, uh, of a medical procedure affecting what they define as hu- uh, uh, reproductive organs, not like any reproductive organs. But what I try to to engage in the, in particular about this debate is is that it's interesting how the judges go through this debate. They develop or, or they formalize the conception of of reproduction as something vital for the development of the nation so, and a driving force of Argentine history. What they will openly say is that uh, genitalia is a social good, so it's a good that is not uh, owned by the by the individual. You know, the, the individuals can't own their own bodies, but it's rather than that, it's a social good that needed to be protected by the state because it's a strategic good for the national development. And so like this idea comes and is repeated. Uh, so what, what we can see behind this law or behind all these debates about how to regulate uh, this experience of medical experiences of, of gender transition, but also this, this social experience of gender transition, is uh, how to protect the nation by protecting every production. And by that, they mean the, the appropriation of every people's rights over their own body. Something that will not only be affected trans people, but will be affected all Argentine citizens, no? because obviously this legislation wasn't talking specifically about trans people, but talking about every citizen's right to own the body. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, there's a number of people who are not super excited about this idea of the state controlling reproduction parts of people's bodies. And um, you very much document this, especially through the lens we've talked about already of the embodied, of the remembered. Can you tell us a bit about some of the approaches that people took to take control, um, even with the state saying these things? Yes, totally. Um, what, what we can see though in the 20th century as a constant is the multiple ways in which people would challenge any attempt of the state to regulate to, to, of policing gender uh, transition of gender embodiment. No, I mean, you're thinking on these two forces. On one hand, these policies are trying to say who can access public space and how you can portray, you know, if you dress, a uh, quote, you know, if you dress in, in clothes of opposite sex, but also these other more intimate interventions of uh, what can you do with your body. Uh, on one hand, we could say that my, my book explores like more everyday social and medical practices uh, to, to navigate this experience from uh, clothing uh, to getting social recognition in your own community. This can be, for example, through migration or forging documents. Or we see this uh, along the century, people moving from one country to another, forging the birth certificate in order to get a, a new document and having the life in the terms of, that we're looking for. Uh, or people going from one country to another to, to seek medical treatments. What I can say, especially if we focus on the second half of the 20th century, is that the, this policy of, of this possession of people's sovereignty over the bod- their bodies will create uh, a precarious conditions and living experience for the trans community. Uh, I would say it drastically undermines uh, trans lives and reduces uh, trans life expectancy drastically. <laughs> uh, so... What, what I try to think in, in, in the second part of the book also is what are the multiple ways in which people um, is, is trying to, to make a body of their own. Um, and, and a more t- a technological way, you know, in the way in which they create community languages, community technologies that then circulate one with each other, and how this is changing the ways in which being travesti or being trans, uh, gender or transsexual um, is, is connected to these technologies. You know, um, from the prosthetic uses of foam, clothes, uh, foreign documents, now forging documents, uh, but, but also to the increasing use of liquid silicone in the 80s and 90s that will have uh, particularly very damaging implications for, for the community, for travesty community and the, and the female trans community in particular. 
alongside with other experiences, such as traveling abroad to get uh, surgeries in countries that are re- less regulated, such as Chile or Colombia, um, but which although will also impact uh, negatively in many many people's lives. So what I can say is like, even if this book engages a lot with notions and practices of medicine, what is interesting is offering a decentralization of, of the traditional histories of medicine and, and health. It's not so centered in the imaginations of doctors or the, or the practices, but really also thinking how unexpected subjects of, of knowledge production participate in this conversation. And uh, no, I'm shifting, no, but, but focusing on this uh, long tradition of trans movements and trans people to challenge medical knowledge and, uh, yeah, and, and pathologization, pathologization um, thinking on them of their historical role as subjects, as produ- producers of, of knowledge in this context. Thank you for taking us through that. I think this is also worth pointing out um, that the book engages as well with photography. Uh, which on this topic in particular, I think was quite powerful to see in the book for anyone looking to um, investigate this topic further. If we continue, however, our chronological exploration of your book, can we move please to the 90s, where there's a whole bunch of very interesting and very important protests that I think speak to your point you've already made about how, yes, these questions are about people who call themselves transvesti or transsexual. But there's also wider populations in Argentina that are involved and implicated in this. What does it mean to be a citizen? What does social belonging look like? Can you tell us about kind of the pushing of these boundaries and the protests in the 90s? Yes, but when I was researching um, this topic, and, and, and I and I want to say I did part of this in collaboration with, with our colleagues, such as Marce Gutierrez, for example, I was... a um, thinking on how to build a genealogy of this very pioneer rights that happened in the 21st century. Like in concrete, for if the audience doesn't know, Argentina was one of the first countries of allowing people to change the ways in which their gender is defined by the state. This means like transforming it in a simple administrative process in which you can just request the state and you will be provided with a new document and, and, and will always change your birth certificate. Um, no, so in concrete means the state gives uh, the sovereignty to people to define the, the what is social what is legally defined as the uh, the legal sex or, or gender in their own documents in ID, and, and this has a lot of practical implications in common lives, especially in countries in which IDs, for example, are constantly requested by police officers. Um, so coming back to the nineties, I see that there are like two very interesting types of products. Uh, knowing this more collaborative research that have been doing. On one hand, we have the travesti research, the travesti uh, uh, demonstrations in the 90s. Now, the 90s is a moment uh, where the first organization of travestis emerged. Uh, the same uh, uh, um, Maria Belen Correa, another founder of Shonda Moyarque, was the founder of the best, uh, the, the first uh, travesti organization in, in the country in 1993. And what, what we see uh, here is that uh, there are different types of, of, of products in the public space that are challenging the ways in which Argentinian usually, or, or the choreography of products. Now, they are not these 
classical trade unions requesting for wage raises or complaining about the neoliberal reforms. They know the human rights movement, no family members that are usually you know, portraying themselves as, as family members, not this idea, you no know, effective idea that, that's working in this moment and, and fighting against the uh, the policies that were forgiven uh, the genocide, uh, militaries involved in genocide. But um, it's a, a very sensual uh, in, in public intervention, a very clever intervention where we see somehow the politicization of nudity, for example, the use of breasts, of silicone, reduced breasts as a symbol of the violence they suffer, not showing parts of the body that are being damaged by police violence. And so this idea of using this scandalous body as a political weapon to to change or to call attention of the media and to open conversation. And they will all also uh, make interventions in, you know, in, in talk shows. You know? It's basically transforming this, all these spaces in political space of conflict uh, to, to fight for the right of being able to access public space in the same terms of all the citizens in Argentina. And, and usually these scandalous policies will clash with uh, this more socially... Uh, middle-class respectability politics that other movements are trying to to portray. I think in particular, this is uh, uh, you can see this in the conflicts they have and the, in the coalitions they create with, with the gay and lesbian movements in which there are certain conflicts that now some members of this movement don't want to be related or connected to these travesties that are from... Know, from all the social class that come from the north of the country, they're racialized, and also they have this very scandalous uh, performance of protests. On the other hand, in the 90s, we see a reemergence of a more uh, political transsexual movements. Um, in fact, the first transsexual organization is Transdevi. Uh, um, and, and we see in certain characters and activists, and I focus on two or three activists, to, to think in the more traditional, that these transsexual women and men are using more traditional figures of womanhood and, and even politicizing this narrative of the brown body to claim or to fight against this uh, medical, uh, this intervention of the state over the possibility of owning one's body, of undergoing a medical intervention, you know, and in, in more in line of the international landscape of legislation that we have in this moment that is more medical-led, you know, the possibility of going for a medical procedure to then get a, a, a transformation of, of your documents. Obviously, this transsexual and travestic movement, we have some conflicts, and we're trying the book to, to engage what are, what are the conflicts behind not, uh, you know, what are, what this tells us about the, the, the social class conception, the rationalized conception of what means to make policy politics in this in this moment in the 90s and what means to intervene in the public space. Um, uh, and, and I try to find in this two driving force through the 2000 or the noughties um, the development of, of, of social movements that we led uh, in 2012 to, to a dispioneer uh, legislation. And I think that in some ways, ambiguity, I suppose, the, the kind of progress in some ways, but what does progress mean and for whom? And, you know, it, it's not a neat and tidy yay or no, right? There's there's a lot of different things going on in this period. And that seems very much to continue um, in not just in the early 2000s, but really quite up till the present. And you speak about this so effectively in the book through the particular instance of the trans flag colors being projected onto the Casa Rosada in 2021. So can you tell us about kind of the multiple ways we might interpret that action and sort of where we're currently at? Um, 
Yes, so these, uh, this image, uh, I was in this moment already living in the UK and, and I came back um, about 2021. Uh, um, um, so the country passed in this moment a, a legislation uh, fostering uh, the employment of trans people that has been historically excluded. Uh, this uh, in concretely mean that they establish a, a quota for public employment of 1% and also certain uh, tax relief for those private employ- employers employing trans people. Um, so the government made a big campaign about it. And I think it was interesting this moment because it was a big achievement. No, another legislation that was somehow calling attention that um, what at the beginning was uh, that the gender identity law was centering more and the possibility of choosing, but also in, in healthcare issues, not the possibility of having an integral healthcare as a right access, not only gender affirmation practices, but the right was also expanding to other areas. Now, the idea of that uh, having a job uh, and social exclusion was part of the experience, was part of the violence of the state. Um, it was a component of the ways in which the state related with this community. But what, what I try to think in this in this final epilogue is on the risk of having a more teleological perspective on, on the development of rights. And we have this idea, and I know the state is changing. Now there is an expansive time of rights, and this is uh, unchangeable. And I think, that, uh, even if I was a little more optimistic, I think that it was quite right to, to say that uh, when we know now that... Uh, Two years after we have a far right government <laughs> in power in Argentina, and that many of these rights are being threatened and are being publicly undermined for the members of this uh, new neoconservative liberal administration. Um, so, what I try to think is like, what are the challenges of translating this new pioneer legislation, this amazing legislation, into reality? Something that I'm not uh, doing, you know, but there are many. People I know that was involved in that moment in government uh, was working in, uh, and that many trans activists were working on, uh, to try to think, well, what means integral healthcare? Now, what means uh, to, to claim to hospitals to really access to you know, my right of gender affirmation practices, but also uh, my rights of being treated how I want to be treated? Um, so, um, what, 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 what I want to do in this last part is by. by f- by challenging this uh, more teleological perspective, is on one hand, well, calling attention on this. You now, this, this is a, a good moment of, of rights, but we don't know how it happened. But it's a, there is a potential here because it's transforming the ways in which the state establishes a, a general relation with citizens. And that's not only affecting trans communities, affecting us all. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also calling our attention that rather than an end goal is more a starting point, maybe, to discuss uh, what it means to be a citizen of Argentina and what are the social and state responsibilities uh, that we have to acknowledge and we have to engage with to, to build a more inclusive uh, society uh, for all. In a country in which, for example, we have 100, 200% of inflation and many people is pushed every day to poverty. So um, what I would say is, on the one hand, at this, you know, like what are the implications of this big transformation of the notion, the general notion of, of citizenship and, and this more embodied conception, how can help us to, to, to rethink our history, or I think what type of society we build in and still what our body keeps recollecting of all experience, in particular, which bodies are recollecting more of this violence and this turbulence experience. Uh, but, but also, and I think this is something that I keep thinking more in these days, and these difficult moments of thinking of of coming back 
to that other ways of of belonging that are activated by communities, that are activated in everyday life. And I think the trans community in particular has done a lot uh, that, uh, on this and, the, and that we have to learn, all of us, on this. Um, because in moments in which co- things come so difficult, there are certain experiences of solidarity and, and, and community building that could be maybe a key point to imagine all the, all the possible societies, all the ways of, of belonging and all the ways of being all together and living together that are not necessarily based on this violent exclusion um, that we, we're facing today. <laughs> What a lovely way to sum up the kind of ending of the book and a lot of its themes as well as what to look for with Argentina going forward. Um, Bringing me only to my final question, that might be some of the challenges in Argentina, some of the important work that's being done, but what about you? (laughs) Um, This book obviously has just come out, but is there anything you might be thinking about working on next, any side projects to this, anything else about your work coming up that you'd like to highlight? Uh, yes, and I would say two big things. Uh, the first thing is that I'm very happy that my 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 previous book on on the history of sex work in Argentina is coming in English uh, with the University of Carolina at the end of this year or the beginning of 2025. So it will be soon out. We're just working on the cover, uh, and I'm obviously very very excited about that. Uh, but but also by my future in research times, I'm I'm, I'm currently working on a new research project with. Um, Cecilia Tosonian, and um, we're trying to do a history or trying to, to set the base to build a history of anti fatness in Argentina. Now, coming back to this idea of bodies and beauties, and, and we're trying to think how, again, how a history of fatness in Argentina uh, could, could be the base um, to thinking you now that on the, of the contours of race, gender, ability, and sexuality, and social class, what this apparent hate. Uh, to fatness, so that many surveys show that it's one of the leading cases of discrimination in Argentina is uh, catalyzing and has been a building historically uh, to understand what it means uh, to belong and what it means to be here in embodied terms. (laughs) Brilliant. Very cool projects. Thank you for giving us those little previews. And of course, um, anyone interested in this can read the book we've been discussing titled A Body of One's Own, A Trans History of Argentina, published by the University of Texas Press in January 2024. Patricio, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. No, thank you for inviting me. Have a good day.